Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 11. We got to finish up Genesis chapter 10 last time. Finally got through all those names. Oh, I'm so glad we got done with the list of names, right? Um, actually, don't, uh, uh, don't think we're completely done with names yet. There's still a few more names to come in the end of chapter 11. But I won't spoil that for right now. We'll just stick to verses 1 through 9 for right now. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. This is the classic Tower of Babel story. Let's see, how many people do we have here? 3, 6, 9. Oh, this is perfect. If you guys don't mind, well, is there anybody here? Raise your hand if you absolutely, positively don't want to read one verse. Okay. <laughs> How about this? Let's just go around the room and read verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Does that work? All right, let's go for it. Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The Lord said, Look, one people and all with one language, the way they are starting to behave, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confessed the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. All right, well done, folks. So this is the classic Tower of Babel story. If you haven't ever run across it before, there it is. You'll see that I've got listed on the board behind me that you can see there's a clear outline to this. The author that put this together, I'm going to say Moses, in putting this together, it's not accidental in the way that this is arranged. If you're just breezing through it, you might not catch it. But when I put it on the board like that, you're like, oh, there is a pattern there. And you can see that basically it's a huge reversal. All right, Just as God reverses their languages, so is the way that the account unfolds a reversal of, of man's ambition and then God bringing them Bring them down a notch, <laughs> right? This story also has sarcasm. It's rich with irony. There's humor in it. And uh, we'll look at some of that as we go now. Starting in verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Five times in this passage in verses 1 through 9, you have this concept of the whole earth. And so it brings it brings the story into uh, where it's, it's basically, it helps the modern reader to understand that this is a universal field of the passage. All right. And then regarding one speech, why is that significant, especially after looking at chapter 10 for several weeks now? One family, I'll derive this. Basically, yeah, one family. We saw from Genesis chapter 10 that there were three different places over there where it was especially mentioned that there were languages, plural. 
And if you remember that, when we looked at the descendants of Shem and the descendants of Ham and the descendants of Japheth, each of those lists ended with the statement of plural languages. In fact, some of those that we can look at right now, chapter 10, verse 5. If you look at 10, verse 5, it says, From these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to their own language. And then if you look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 20, it says, These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages. And if you look at verse 31, these were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages. So clearly in chapter 10, you have the mention at the end of each of those lists, languages, plural. So starting off chapter 11, verse 1, by saying that there was one language, it gives us a clue that this happens, Genesis chapter 11, this incident, verses 1 through 9, happens before the ends of those lists, if you're going to arrange a chronology. All right? And you remember we talked about maybe that was during the time of Peleg, when the earth was divided not sure whether or not that was geographical or if that was divided in languages or by some other way. Um, verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And then verse 2, and it came to pass as they journeyed. Mine says from the east. Mm -hmm. Anybody have something different than that? I do. Do you? What do you have? As men moved eastward. As men moved eastward. Do you see the difference there? Esther's translation that she's using has them going in the opposite direction than other translations. It can go either way. The translation could go either way. It can have them moving toward the east or it can have them moving from the east. There isn't consensus on it. So you'll have things like the King James, New King James, and ESV say from the east. New Living Translation says to the east. NIV says moved eastward. And then the NASV says journeyed east. All right. So... We're not sure which direction they're going. Maybe they're going east. Maybe they're coming from the east. The interesting thing, though, if they're going east, what we've seen so far in our study of Genesis is you look at some of the other verses. Uh, for example, look at chapter 2, verse 8. Somebody mind reading chapter 2, verse 8. What does it say there? The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had Excellent. Thank you, Bianca. So there you have a mention of a garden being made by God. A garden of Eden, of course, being eastward from the perspective of the person telling the story. Okay. How about chapter 3, verse 24? What does it say over there? 324, last verse of chapter 3. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So it's interesting that the garden is in the east. And then when man is driven away from the garden, man and woman, of course, Adam and Eve, when they're driven out of the garden, which direction are they driven? East. They're driven to the east. All right. Turn to chapter 4, verse 16. What does it say over there? So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So here you have Cain. He seems to be driven even further east. So you see, it seems to be this kind of eastward progression. And then turn to chapter 10, verse 30. What does it say over there? The region where they lived stretched from Mesha towards Safar in the eastern hill country. So here you have the, the extent or the boundary, one of the boundaries of the descendants of Shem. So you've got this, it almost seems like a picture as the story progresses, moving further and further east. I don't know what the significance of that might be. It's just something that kind of crops up because every time there seems to be a mention of direction, east is like the direction that comes up the most. All right. Interestingly, though, a couple other things to consider. The temple, the arrangement of the temple, the entrance to the temple. Which direction did that face? East. east. That faced east. Zechariah mentions when the Messiah comes back, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. 
which is east of the temple. It could be that when Jesus comes back again, right, he's coming from the east. It's almost as if the story as we're reading it, everything's moving away, heading eastward. And I wonder if maybe Jesus is going to bring it all back. I don't have a whole lot to give you there, just, to, just something to ponder. But moving on there for something a little more concrete. Verse 2 actually mentions here, And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Have we seen this Shinar before? We have. Anybody remember where? I'll give you hints. In chapter 10. Oh, verse 10. And verse 10. Good job. What does it say there? And the beginning of his kingdom was... I can't read All right. Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Good job, Bianca. Shinar. Who is the he mentioned in this verse? In verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom. If you look at verse 9... I'll give you the answer. Nimrod. Nimrod. Remember that Nimrod guy? He was like the famous guy in that line. And he got that strange comment about him. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. This story that we're reading about, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 11, takes place in the land that was ruled by Nimrod. So some people think Nimrod may have been the guy that was kind of in charge of this project, perhaps. That it was during Nimrod's time, perhaps. Again, I'm just, I don't know, that's speculation, but uh, you do have some pieces, some bits of evidence that you can use to support that. In the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Shinar. Shinar is a place of settlement. It undoubtedly represents the land of Mesopotamia, a territory that was first called Sumer, and then Akkad, and then Babylonia. So if we're looking on the map, we're looking at an area that's basically in western Iraq. All right, the Tigris, the Euphrates rivers up in here, <laughs> Babylon and Babylonia, this area right in here. All right. Some would suggest it might extend even into western Iran, so, um, but in general you've got this area in here and you've got the border of Iraq and Iran in the general area of where this occurs. Interestingly, uh, when, we re- when we read about those lands that uh, talked about that Nimrod was over, Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne, those lands actually correspond with some of the places that we know that ziggurats were built. Some huge monuments built by man, ancient, long time ago, Oh, and built by men using baked bricks. Baked bricks, oh, and asphalt, or bitumen as mortar. Kind of cool. Oh, and they've got names that are kind of similar to what we see here. If you also look there, too, it mentions in this verse that they dwelt there or they settled there. Different translations will say dwelt or settled there. Do you remember what God said in chapter 9, verse 1? Somebody mind reading chapter 9, verse 1? This is right after the flood. What does it say? God blessed Noah and his sons and told them to be fruitful, multiply, and populate the earth. He wants them to be fruitful and to multiply and populate the earth, to fill the earth. They're doing a good job multiplying. They're, they're being fruitful and multiplying, but they're staying together. Right? Remember God wanted them to spread out? In fact, go check out chapter 1, verse 22. Going way back now. Chapter 1, verse 22. God's direction to the animals during creation, the fifth day of creation, at the end of the fifth day of creation. What does it say there in 122? God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply in the earth. So God's intention, even from that point of, of the creation week, wants them to be fruitful and multiply and increase and fill the earth. How about 128? What does it say over there? God, God bless them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish and of the sea, 
and over the birds and of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Good job, Ron. So here we have at the end of the sixth day of creation, God has given the same instructions to mankind. Go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Turn to chapter 8 now, chapter 8, verse 17. What does it say there? Bring out with you every living creature. You have these their birds, uh, livestock, creeping creatures of the earth. Bring them out with you so they may breed freely on the earth. Let them be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Excellent. So there we were given instructions again after the flood. The animals are now given the same instruction basically that they were given at creation. Go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then we looked at just now Genesis chapter 9 verse 1 where mankind is given the same instruction. Go be fruitful, multiply, go fill the earth. And they're staying together in one place. They're staying in a city. <laughs> and what is their concern? When you're reading through that in chapter 11 verse 1, doesn't it say that they don't want to be scattered, right? In verse 4, and they said, come let us build ourselves a city. Stay in the city. And the tower whose top is in the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered. We don't want to be spread out throughout the earth. Lest we be scattered. Oh, I want to stay right here. I want to stay with my friends. <laughs> mm -hmm. They don't want to be spread abroad throughout the earth. In looking at verse 33 for a second there, verse 33, or I'm sorry, verse 3, it says, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks. The come, let us, recurs again in the beginning of verse 4. Come, let us. And it also begins again in verse 7. Come, let us. The first two are the same people, the people of the earth. Verse 7 is going to be different. It's God. <laughs> All right. So verse 3 and verse 4, come, let us, and then they talk about what, what they're going to do. Regarding the making the bricks, the author is giving this for the benefit of the readers because the readers are in the promised land, and the building material over there is stone. It's largely stone, all right? The building material in the place that he's discussing is different, so he's wanting to talk about that. And the building material out on the plain, you don't have a lot of stones. you got a whole lot of dirt, so you make bricks. And the way you make your bricks last longer is you bake your bricks. All right. And the way that you make them last even longer is you glue them together with bitumen or asphalt or tar, or the King James Version says slime. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right, It's basically this tarry-like substance that you would use and would hold your bricks together. And this is a building material that's been used since ancient times, and you'll even see that it's still used to the present as well. In verse 4, and they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower. This is not the first time that building of a city is mentioned. Where was the first time that building a city was mentioned? Anybody remember? A little trivia question here. It's in chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17. There was a curse on a particular person that he would be a vagabond and a wanderer. Yep, Esther's got it. Cain. That uh, was kind of an ominous connection there with Cain and the city building. And here we have city building and another ominous connection with what people are doing for themselves. Build a city and a tower. The word for tower there is Migdal. And Migdal is related to the word for great, which is Gadol. So you can't just say tower, you've got to say tower, because it's this big imposing structure. And oftentimes it was used as a military fortification. Sometimes you'd have a watchtower that you'd be able to look out and see danger or threats approaching, but usually it was a fortified type of tower. It indicated in Isaiah the same word is used as a symbol of strength and pride. All things that God really likes to see in us, doesn't he? He likes to see pride in us. Oh, wait, I don't think that's actually right. Strength and pride. They were also interested in building for themselves a name. A name? What does that mean? And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. What does it mean to make a name for yourself? Let's just brainstorm here for a second. To be known throughout the land. To be known, good. Good, to be known throughout the land. 
status. Status. Okay, good. What else? What else goes along with that? Fame and fortune. Fame and fortune. Yeah. Pursuits that sound like a, lo a lot of times end up being without God, right? Sometimes we conjure up these great ideas that we want to build for ourselves empires and pillars of strength and monuments that don't have God in the mix, right? We sometimes forsake God in our pursuits to build ourselves fame and fortune and reputation and a name for ourselves. That would be one of the cautions, I would say, one of the applications for us today as we would read through this story is be careful what you endeavor to do if God's not in it. In this story, God's not in it. And despite their best efforts at building something grand, something that reaches to the heavens, something that's going to be lasting, in their minds they're hoping that brings them fame and notoriety, but really God's not in it. And so it's not going to end well for them as it wouldn't for us in our lives. If we are supposed to be following God and he's got a call on us and we decide to follow our own pursuits despite his call on us, and we decide to follow our own pursuits, if God's not in it, it's all going to be brought to nothing. It's going to be a colossal waste of time, as this was a colossal waste of time. Strength and pride and fame and notoriety. Regarding ziggurats in the area, I've got some pictures here. These are actual photographs of ziggurats. You can actually see the ruins of ziggurats to this day if you go into certain places. Here is a photograph. This is obviously not current and not modern day. This is obviously decades, if not a century old or so, of the, of the ruins of a ziggurat that you can go visit. Mm -hmm. um, some other ones as well. This stairway right here, this stairway is on the Great Ziggurat of Ur. It's kind of like mm -hmm. the focal point of the front stairway that you would find on that ziggurat. These are actual places you can go and visit. Here's a, re it's not a reproduction, but a rebuilt one. There was one there and they are trying to like reconstruct it in a sense because, hey, they're great tourist attractions, all right? Mm -hmm. So you can actually go and visit these. Uh, this one is the Great Ziggurat of Ur. So this is on the location of the actual one and they're trying to uh, you know, reconstructed in a sense. One of the neat things about that picture is that the Great Ziggurat in Ur is it's near a military base, an allied military base, and there's quite a few pictures you can find online of military personnel going for a photo op there at the, on the stairs. Of. These ziggurats, they were comprised of basically rectangular or square stepped levels, all right? And some of them were just two or three, and then some of them they got built. I think one of them they said they were able to discern that there were at least seven, seven different levels that they could go up to, towers that would reach into heaven. Here's a map if you want to go visit some. You know, you got your map of, hey, let's, let's take a couple days and drive, drive through this area here. And uh, let's go see a whole bunch of ruins of ziggurats. So you can actually go and visit these things. It's kind of cool. But the ziggurats, they were made with baked bricks. They were put together with tar or asphalt. There's a picture online I ran across with the great ziggurat. You can see the asphalt still holding some of those bricks together. It's really pretty amazing. This is just the same kind of stuff they're telling us about here in the story, right? Right through the Genesis account. One of the things, too, where they say in verse 4, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens whose top is in the heavens, oftentimes these structures were constructed as uh, with the idea of a stairway to heaven. So you had these grand staircases that you would see, and the idea was that you were providing for your, your deity, for your God, the opportunity and the location to come down and visit you and be happy with what he sees and to accept your offerings and then, uh, you know, to bless you. And you'd have great crops or whatever the case might be, all right? Some of these names, I mean, when it talks about the top is in heavens, that's right out of Genesis. You look at the actual names of some of these ziggurats that they know of, and you end up finding the house of the link between heaven and earth. That one is at Larsa. Another one is the staircase from earth to heaven. 
The next one is the House of the Seven Guides of Heaven and Earth at Borsippa, the House of the Foundation Platform of Heaven and Earth at Babylon, and the House of the Mountain of the Universe at Ashur. So it was the idea that this was a place that provided access for a man to go up and for God to come down and a meeting place in the middle. All right. These cities where they built some of these ziggurats are some of the same names that we see in the list with Nimrod. Some of the same places. And the interesting thing too is these cities weren't originally built for people to live in. The city started off as a complex that had the ziggurat as a focal point and a temple complex. And the people lived outside of that and are surrounding that but not actually in the city like you and I picture living in a city nowadays. All right, so the temple complex oftentimes overwhelmed the focal point of the arrangement there. And then these, these arrangements, um, like I said, they were made with burnt brick. They would make like a shell of the burnt bricks, and then they'd often fill in the middle with just fill dirt. So unlike, uh, say, the, you know, the Egyptian pyramids, which actually had tunnels and actually had different chambers inside of them, these, for large part, seemed to be chamberless. They were just structures that were built as a shell. And then at the very top, they would have a little temple or a little um, a covered porch of sorts, and they would have a couch and a table. A couch and a table to serve God. When he would come down, he'd be tired, so you wanted to have a little, you know, something for him on the table, and he could rest on the couch. <sighs> okay, I've got my energy back. I can go back now. And sometimes they'd even have, uh, you know, supply a virgin in case, you know, the God was, I don't know, needing refreshment or something of some sort. All right? So that was what these were about. I'm sorry, I think in the God of the Bible isn't following the pattern of those kinds of ideas. He doesn't need help. He doesn't need refreshing. All right, he doesn't need your virgin. All right. A man-made God. Yeah, it's a man-made God. Yeah. It's a temple about making a God for yourself. Yeah. And it's about providing yourself access to a place that God would say, you have no place going. This isn't a realm for you. And I don't need your help. And I don't need your refreshment. All right. So you can see how this might incense the God that we read about in our Bible, when you know the nature and the character of the God that we read about in the Bible. So they try to make a name for themselves, but that doesn't seem to be turning out too well. Verse 5, is it's the one that gets the most comments having to do with the thickest irony as you read through it. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. By the way, some of the translations say which the children of men built. <laughs> That's what you've got, the children of men. Victor B. Hamilton, one of the commentators, he ends up writing this about it. It is difficult to miss the irony in this verse. The builder's intention is to erect a tower whose top will be in the heavens. That is among the gods. But even though they build the tower, it is so far from the heavens that God must come down to see it. <laughs> They think they're building a tower reaching to the heavens. God's going, yeah, i got to go down there to even see what they're doing. And then uh, Kenneth Matthews says something similar. He says, the narrative's penchant for irony is nowhere any stronger than in this verse, whose sad message is told in an entertaining style. The necessary descent of God and the humanness of the enterprise, quote, that the men were building, unquote, shows the escapade for what it was, a tiny tower conceived by a puny plan and attempted by a pint-sized people. <laughs> so as you can tell, the commentators have a field day with the irony in this verse. Interestingly, as we're reading, as you look at these verses, when you run across the word people, the word that's used for people here in this passage, verses 1 through 9, is different than was used to describe the peoples over in chapter 10. In chapter 10, it was goy. In chapter 10, it was about the nations. In chapter 11, it's am. 
And the word is used to describe people that more often have a kinship, an affiliation with one another. So that the story is about these people who are related to one another. You can have nations and the people don't necessarily have to be related to one another. But with this word, it conjures up more of an idea of kinship between them. So here you have this grand group of people coming together and they're bound by a kinship of sorts. And they get this grand scheme that they're going to build a temple to a man-made God. And it's uh, something to facilitate the deity's weaknesses right, and need for strength. Well, yeah, you can see how that can go over with our God. In verse 6, that's one of the places where it mentions the word for people there. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. It's kind of interesting, the solution here is kind of similar to the Garden of Eden solution. Remember in the Garden of Eden situation, man and woman had made bad choices and they had put themselves in a place where if God had not intervened, they probably would have gotten themselves into trouble. And here we have a similar situation. Mankind seems to be making bad choices. And if it weren't for God intervening, they're going to get themselves in trouble is kind of what the theme it sounds like. And it's interesting there too in verse 7 where it says, come, let us go down. It's making fun of them saying, come, let us do this. Come, let us do that. And God says, hmm, come, let us go down and fix this. <laughs> All right. And it's kind of interesting too. If your concept of God is the Trinity, if it's Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit or multiple, you know, three in one, here you have some language that seems to fit well with that. Come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. It's not come, let us go over Right, it's not come, let us go over. Well done. Yes, indeed. Come, let us go down. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them abroad. The Lord scattered them abroad. You know, Babel or Babylon, the earliest outside the Bible uh, name for Babylon is Kadingir Ki, which is usually written as Kadingir Ra. And the actual meaning is gate of God. Babylon, gate of God. Okay. And so this passage ends up with that in mind, gate of God. It ends up saying this, So the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Babel is actually, it's, there's a pun that's going on here. Babel, it sounds like the word that's actually used for confused. So the author is making a point and taking that gate of God and giving you a word that sounds similar to it and saying, confused all right so they're tie he's tying in it's making a correlation a wordplay if you will between babble and confused all right and they wanted to make a name for themselves it says uh they did make a name for themselves right they wanted to be great in fame and notoriety they wanted to be recognized and well known and what do they get they become blithering idiots and babbling fools all right that's the name they get blithering idiots and babbling fools I want to talk a little bit about language. Today, in our day and age, we have approximately six or 7,000 different languages. Six or 7,000 languages. If you're a Bible translator, that's a lot of work. <laughs> All right? Uh, the six or 7,000 languages, from what I've been reading, it sounds like you can pair a lot of these languages or put a lot of these languages together. You say you've got this language, this language, this language, and you can put them together because you can find similarities and you can tell, hey, it seems that these probably came from a similar language back in time some way. Uh, for example, I speak English, obviously, and uh, when I turn on my GPS, you know, if, if the battery's been, you know, taken out and I put the batteries back in and turn back on, it asks me what language I want. Oh, not a problem. I click on English, and then it gives me a choice. Do you want American English, 
do you want Australian English or do you want English spoken in the UK, right? And aren't they all English? Well, you, can, you know they're, they're somewhat different, right? So I can choose which one I want because of the differences are, are sufficient enough that I have a choice between these three. And those aren't even different languages, all right? So there's, there's these relationships between these six and 7,000 languages that linguists take and they go, let's group together the ones that we think are related to one another. And so they come up with about 20 language families. They say if you go back far enough in time, you can find 20 individual language families, as far as they can tell right now. All right? There was a proposal for a long, long time, and it's still kind of popular today, that all languages came from a single language, that there was one single language that gave rise to all the others. The problem was when they get down to these 20, they can't seem to get any further. They can't seem to say, of these 20, we can find that these two match up, these two match up, and then and they go down and take it to the one. Okay, here's what I would say. If you're a linguist and you're believing in the proposition that all languages came from one single language and you were to map that out, what would it look like? It would look like a tree. It would look like a single tree and the trunk is the original language, whatever it might have been. And growing from that trunk, then you would have it branching off into various language families. And then branching off from those, you would have until, you've, until your trunk has encompassed 7,000 branches for all of language. But now they're kind of getting embarrassed because they can't make it work. They can't reconcile it. And so they're proposing, well, what, what other model could we use? Well, now the model is perhaps language sprang up over here and 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 all roughly at the same time. And so what would the model look like if you mapped that out? Instead of a single tree, you would have a forest of trees. You would have 20 trees or so, right? because each tree would be a different language, as if they're all sprouting up all at the same time in different places, is what the proposal is now. Well, they're dancing around because they're trying to be careful because in, in the articles that I was reading, they're actually, they actually have some of these linguists are vocalizing that they're concerned that they will be ostracized by their community if they're seen as creationists. Not that they're trying to identify themselves as creationists. They're afraid that the evidence that they're coming up with supports the biblical story. And so they're kind of trying to dance around and be, uh, you know, still be in their group, or their popular group, and still wrestle with these facts uh, of what it's looking like maybe supports a Tower of Babel type of story. And for them, you know, it's career suicide to identify themselves, you know, with this story. So there, you know, there's this tension that they're going through. You know, the interesting thing is we've looked at another place, if you remember, where there was that tree model. Remember, it was life. All life has its origin in one place. Remember the evolutionist idea? That all life goes back to one single, you know, spark of life that started. And from that spark of life, you know, that being the trunk, it grows up and then it separates into major branches, into minor branches. And now I can be related to the dandelion and the butterfly and the ape all at the same time because I'm part of this tree of life. Okay? And that you remember we looked at that. And what does the Bible say? It says that God created animals according to their kinds. And then when it comes to the day of Noah, Noah takes upon the ark the animals that God brought him, and he brought them according to their kinds. And you remember we looked at macroevolution versus microevolution. Noah didn't need to take every cat species on the ark and every dog species on the ark and every horse species on the ark. He just needs to take a horse kind, a dog kind, a cat kind, because cats can come from cats. And dogs can come from dogs, and horses can come from horses. But horses don't come from cats, and cats don't come from dogs. All right? So kinds, and you remember we used the illustration, what would that look like? It would look like a forest of trees rather than single trees. You have a cat tree, 
you have a dog tree, you have a horse tree, and from the horse tree come horses, and from the dog tree come dogs, and from the cat tree come cats. And that was the idea that a form of micro versus macro evolution, that the Bible actually could support that, that there's multiple trees according to kinds. As languages, that same illustration seems to spill over into language. So when you're looking at the origin of language, when you're looking at the evolution of language, they're finding we can't make it fit where they all come from one. It seems that they just kind of cropped up all of a sudden, almost like a Tower of Babel story. That maybe everybody did speak one language from the time of Adam up until this time of Tower of Babel story. And then a Tower of Babel story, what do you have? Lots of languages, multiple languages. And the only difference in the proposal is they say at various places. Various languages cropping up almost simultaneously at various places. As if the place gave rise to the language, whereas the Tower of Babel story has the language gives rise to the places. Because what happens? The people are going, oh, I, I don't understand you, I don't understand you, but I understand you. Let you and I get together, your family, you bring your family, I'll bring mine. We'll move together somewhere where we can understand each other, and you move where you, you can understand each other, and you guys move. And then people start to orient themselves in places according to their languages. All right, that was a long way around. <laughs> Do you see kind of the picture that I'm yeah. describing? Oh, it's confusing. <laughs> no, <it's, laughs> let me try again. <laughs> no, I meant the language. So the, oh, the, <laughs> good pun there. Good play on words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so just uh, giving you that picture now. That it's interesting how that's coming about. Where in the community that's studying the evolution of language, that they're actually getting to the point where it sounds like they're more comfortable admitting that evolution as a model isn't fitting as as they understand it. That evolution maybe accounts for small differences over time. They say that it's about 20% of a language changes every thousand years. Wow. All right, But there hasn't been enough time to account for all the changes that would be necessary between now and going back as far as they can study language to account for the major differences that we have. That they're coming to the conclusion that these seem to have cropped up individually in different, in different places, as they would say, but cropping up almost simultaneously a language completely different from another language, almost simultaneously. And they can't get over the fact that genetically they say we're related to the apes, that the apes are our closest relative. Yet for the apes, they're not able to produce speech because their vocal cords are a different shape and a different length. And that we're constructed in such a way that we can speak because of that difference in shape and length, yet we are more prone to choking. We're more prone to choking because of that. And I'm saying, if you have survival of the fittest, that doesn't sound like a survival of the fittest combination, right? Mm -hmm. If it's strictly based on survival of the fittest, you're going to get your chokers choking off more readily than you're going to get your non-chokers choking off, and the place would be run by apes, and there'd be no humans. I don't know. I'm just thinking outside. Of Maybe <laughs> I don't think that's enough. <laughs> so I'm just saying, all of this is very interesting because they're going through this, and the facts seem to be leading them to a place where Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, doesn't sound so crazy. In fact, the direction they're going is where Genesis 11, 1 through 9 has already been. All right? And what they're finding is they're in a place where they're having to make choices. And you ever heard that saying, don't bother me with the facts, I've already made my mind up? You know, there's people that are finding themselves in that place where they've already made their mind up and now the facts are confronting them and they're going, what am I going to do with this information? If I go this direction, I'm going to be ostracized by my community. They're going to think I'm a fool. You know what Paul says? I'm okay being a fool for Christ. All right? The wisdom of the world is foolishness to him. All right? I'm okay with that. You know, these people try to go through this story trying to make a name for themselves, and that ends in disaster. By the end of chapter 11, we're going to meet a man named Abram. 
And in chapter 12, as it begins, God says to Abram, I will make a name of you. It's not that God is against somebody having a name made for them. It's that God wants to be the one that makes it, Amen. not us. Right. And so when God says to Abram, I'm going to make a name of you. Go to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're just going to peek over there. All right, we're not going to, <laughs> we're just going to peek. Chapter 12, verses, let's look at verses 2 and 3. We're just going to shorten it down. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. But it doesn't end there. Look where it goes. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and it was disaster. It was blithering idiots and babbling fools. God says to Abram, I will make a name of you. I will make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They got scattered, but you know what? This kingdom that they were trying to build, destroyed. This kingdom that God builds in Abraham still growing. Mm -hmm. Abraham is a father of faith of all of us. If you're a child of faith and you're in the family of God, it's because Abraham, the, the like faith that Abraham had. Mm -hmm. And that kingdom's still growing. When God's in the mix, it grows. When man's trying it on his own, it falls into nothing. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We pray that you would that you would take over our lives, Lord. We don't want to be those people who try things on our own and find failure at the end of our colossal pursuits. That we invested all of our time, all of our money, all of our resources, all of our whatever into something and found out at the end, oh dear, I didn't have God with me in this. And it comes to nothing. Lord, nothing's worth our time if you're not in it. Help us, Lord, to pour ourselves into you and that you would direct our paths and make our paths straight. We pray, God, that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray that you would just find us useful instruments in your hands. Lead us and guide us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. You guys have a great week. Praise God.